Amen. If you have a Bible, please open with me. We have one more Sunday, Lord willing, before we will begin our next exposition in a specific book of Scripture. So if you would, turn with me to Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 3. And we will look at the very familiar story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their time in the fiery furnace. Uh, we'll look at this under the idea, under the heading of a courageous stand for true worship. I said we wanted to spend a few weeks talking about the idea and the concept of worship. And in the story of three, these three young men, we have a very clear picture and portrait of what it means to stand firmly and courageously for true worship. As we study God's Word, the goal is always to get to the heart and to the main focus of the text. And as we think about the story, there are details I'm sure that you can quickly recall to mind, but the thrust of this text is exactly as we're going to try to flesh out today the courage of these men as they stood for the true worship of the Lord. And this is a longer text. We'll kind of work our way through most, uh, the entire chapter really, and so we're not going to read all of it at, at once. We'll read a lot of it as we go, but I want to kind of set the stage and then read a, a main portion of this passage to kick us off. So verses 1 through 12 are really the setup for what happens with, with these three young men. The, the king of the day, Nebuchadnezzar, he builds a statue. He demands that it must be worshipped, and these three men, along with, I think, other Jews, chose not to worship as they were told. They were obeying God rather than men. And so then they don't worship, and this group of people, the Chaldeans, they come to the king, and they, they come with flattering speech, and they say, King, these people won't worship. You need to punish them effectively. And so that's verses 1 through 12. And then by verse 13, this king is enraged. And so that's where we want to kind of zone in, verses 13 through 18. And you'll, you know the story after he calls them and demands that they worship. They don't worship the idol. And King Nebuchadnezzar has them thrown into the furnace. The Lord delivers them and shows his great and mighty power. But again, I want to zone in on verses 13 through 18 to, to read, to kind of begin our time. So if you would, and if you're able, please stand with me in honor and in reverence to the word. And we'll read Daniel chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. This is holy, inerrant, inspired scripture, the very word of God. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then these three men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded, and he said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, the king continued, If you are ready, at the moment that you hear the sound of horn and flute, and lyre, and trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made. Very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us 
from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is the word of God. May he write it upon our hearts to the glory of his name. You may be seated. Now would you join me and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, it is with great weightiness, but the sense of great privilege that we bow before your throne. For you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are, as the angels cry out in your presence, holy, holy, holy. For, O oh God, the whole earth is full of your glory. All of your creation tells of your great and mighty power. Lord, you and you alone are worthy to be worshipped. Lord, so with that desire that we come before you now, desiring to worship you in spirit and truth, desiring, Lord, to lay our lives down in a pure sacrifice of worship, pleasing and acceptable to you only through Christ. Lord, we live in an age where there are so many things that can take our attention and our focus and can take the primary point in our lives over the worship of you. And Lord, all, all that I ask is that that would never be. That we as your people set apart for your possession and your own glory, Lord, that we would be a people who are passionate for worshiping you and you alone. Lord, that does not mean only on Sundays. It's not only one day of the week, but every moment of every day. Lord, the whole of our lives are to be given to you, to be used for your glory. Lord, that's a monumental call. It's only by your spirit that it can be accomplished. It's only through your grace and through the powerful working of your spirit through the application of your word, that we could ever live lives that honor you. Lord, we come boldly because we know that we come washed in the precious, soul-cleansing, soul-redeeming blood of Christ. So we come boldly. Lord, I pray that we would come before you with utmost humility. Lord, would you help us in this time? Would you cause your spirit to work in our hearts? Would you cause your spirit to take the words that will be spoken and make them accurate, correct, helpful, encouraging, exhorting, and ultimately, above all, glorifying to you? Lord, would you sanctify us in and by the truth? Lord, would you help us to see the power and the might of your providential hand? Lord, would you help us and cause us to live lives that are worthy of the name of Christian, that are worthy of followers of Christ? 
Lord, we desire to give every ounce of strength. I pray, I hope that's our desire. To give every ounce of strength to live lives to the praise of your glorious grace. Lord, even if we do that, if it's not by the work of your Spirit, it's all for nothing. If we don't do that as those who are made new through the work of Christ, it's all for nothing. Lord, would you give us hearts that are devoted to you, hearts that are overwhelmed with love for you, Lord, would you receive our offering and our sacrifice of worship today? Would you show us the greatness and the glorious work of Christ? Would you show us how far it reaches into our lives? Would you do all this to the praise of your glory? We ask in Christ's name, amen. So again, the courageous stand for true worship. And as we get to Daniel chapter 3, I want to take just a few moments to kind of show you what has transpired in the story of Daniel and these three young men leading up to this point. For this is not their first run-in with the king. Daniel and these young men and some others were selected to serve on the king's court in Daniel chapter 1. And Daniel made a stand to say, we will not eat of the food and drink of the wine of the king that was defiled and that in itself was a stand and Daniel found favor with one of the leaders of the king's officers and he was given a special privilege to not eat of the food and drink of the wine along with at least these three other companions following that and going into chapter two we see that the king here had a troubling dream, a troubling dream that left him without sleep. And so he gathered all the wise men, including the Chaldeans that we will read about in Daniel chapter 3, to try to interpret and explain the dream to him. Well, nobody could do it. And so Daniel, in the wisdom and the knowledge that's given to him only by the Lord, comes before the king and declares to the king exactly what his dream was and exactly what it meant. And when Daniel did that, the king highly favored him. Daniel was set apart as the ruler of the province of Babylon. And at the end of chapter 2, when Daniel is given this high position, his one request of the king is, can Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come and rule with me? Can, can they work with me to lead this people? And the king said, yes. It was a position of authority in favor that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego had before this pagan king. And as we focus now into Daniel chapter 3, and, and we see the story of physical deliverance from a flaming furnace, dear friends, before we go any further, let us take this picture and allow it to direct our minds to Christ. For this picture's Christ delivering us from the furnace of eternal hell. As the Lord delivers these three men, our minds and our hearts must be reminded of the work of Christ to deliver us from the power and the penalty and the condemnation of sin. So with that, 
primary idea that we must see in the text is that Christ has delivered us from the ultimate enemy, Satan himself. And our response is to fear God. It's not to fear men and to be devoted to worshiping God alone. So that's the premise. Because Christ has delivered us, we do not fear men. We fear God and worship him alone. And we stand courageously without wavering in our commitment to the Lord and the Lord alone. There may come a time, very well may come a time in the near future when physical deliverance does not come. Where physical safety is not guaranteed, but as Christians, ours is a hope that looks beyond the grave. It looks beyond this life. So when they come and knock on your door and ask you if you're a Christian, you say yes and let them carry you off to be killed. Because your hope is not in this life. It's with this eternal hope that we must fix our eyes and direct our hearts to this glorious duty that the Lord has given us. It's the pure, biblical, God-commanded worship of God alone. We must stand with courage. With the narrative of this length, um, I have to be very clear, we will not pick up all the details. There's a lot that we could dig in on here, and, and we're not going to pick it all up. I want to kind of give an overview of some sections and, and dig in on, on another section and just work our way through kind of with, with five headings, five waypoints along the way through the text. We begin in verses 1 through 7, looking at the king's order, the king's order to worship. Daniel 3 begins, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width was 6 cubits. So this is a, a massive idol. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, and he calls together, verse 2 lays out, he calls together the leading men, and they come, and then verse 4 it says, Then the herald loudly proclaimed to you, the command is given, O peoples and nations and men of every language, that at the moment that you hear the sound of all these, this kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Verse 6, but whoever does not fall down in worship shall be immediately cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when the peoples heard the sound of all that music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So again, we, we looked at the second command a, a couple second commandment a couple weeks ago that, that we should not have and worship and serve idols. And clearly what we see here is a breaking of that commandment. But do we notice that, that this is not just any idol or any image? It's I, I think roughly ninety feet tall by nine feet wide, uh, just a massive structure. This is uh, the ultimate offense to the Lord. The ultimate blasphemy against the true God who commands that we have no idols. This is the ultimate offense to the Lord's people. Because the king says, everyone must bow down and worship. Everyone bow down and worship. You know, it's not as though we we live in an age and in a culture that is relatively 
free, and, and the pagans in our age, they worship all kinds of various gods and various idols, but they're free legally to do that. That is not what was going on here. This was king-demanded idol worship. This is what we would consider in our day state-commanded breaking of God's law. The people were told, you must bow and worship. No ifs, no ands, no buts. But not only were they commanded that you must bow down and worship, but what came along with that was this great threat. If you don't worship, you will be thrown into a burning furnace and you will be burned alive. In our land, we have not reached that level of threat as we practice the true religion of evangelical Christianity. But dear friends, do you see that we are on a rapidly increasing pace and path to that happening. We are receiving rapidly increasing hate and scorn and disdain for standing up for the true worship of God as outlined in his book, The Holy Scriptures. We must be wise as the people of God. We must be understanding of our culture, and we must not be so ignorant that we think that this peaceful, neighbor-loving call to disobey God's word is actually right and good, but it's rather an offense to God. It's how they get you. That's how evil works. They come in with a cloak. They come in with deceit and deception. That is a satanic work to pull the, pull the wool over our eyes so that we do not see what's going on And then before you know it, it's like a frog being boiled in water. Before you know it, you have no freedom left to worship God as according to Scripture. Defense to this is a good offense. Use a sports analogy. If we're going to defend against this deception, we must go on the offensive in that we must know what God commands. We must know what he requires. You think back three years now to the beginnings of COVID. One reason I think that so many churches so utterly failed in the response to COVID is because they didn't know how God had commanded them to assemble. I understand there, there should be grace given because everyone is operating in different areas in different levels of understanding of what is really going on. And and so that's not just a a broadcasting of judgment. But these places that went a year, two years, three years still not meeting and gathering for worship, they were so fooled and so duped because they don't know what God commands. They don't know what he requires. They don't know who is the head of the church. And to to play defense, to defend against this encroachment of the culture and the world and evil, the best defense is a good offense. We must know what the Lord commands. One telling marker in the text, and I think it clearly applies in our day too, of the overall wickedness of the culture is seen In verse 7, it says, When when the people heard the sound of the music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down 
and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. All the men, all the people, people from every language, all of the nations fell down and worshipped. Dear friends, is that not what we see going on in our world today? This unification in blasphemy? That you have all these people who gather together and they stand against biblical Christianity. It's not against Hinduism. It's not against the Muslims. It's not really even against people like the Roman Catholics or the Jehovah's Witness. It's against biblical Christianity. Everyone gathers together to unite in standing in blasphemy against the Lord God of all creation. Just like in Daniel's day. All the people will bow down and worship an idol. It should be a sign of the times when our world celebrates and really just crams down our throat this wickedness, and this debauchery, and all kinds of faults and profane and blasphemous worship and practice. Dear friends, we must realize the duty of the church, and you hear very carefully, the duty of the church is not to get along with the culture. It's to be set apart by God as the people of God. Now that does not mean that we go out and pick a fight at every single turn does not mean that we are to be the most contentious people that there are. In fact, we should be the exact opposite. But we must be set apart. We are saints. Those who are set apart. Those who are holy. Those who are called out of the world. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. We don't get along with the culture. And any who strive to do that under the banner of Christianity, are doing it all wrong. They're not in submission to the book. They're in submission to their flesh, to the cravings of the flesh, and the desire for power and authority and a good name. Friends, we must open our eyes and in one sense see that the walls are closing in around us. Do not fear, for God is with us. The walls are closing in, but our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Know the condition of the world around you. So that's the king's order. And in verses, um, verse 8 through 12, we also see the Chaldeans' disdain. Verse 8, it says, For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews, they responded and they said to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that whoever hears the sound of the music is to fall down and worship the golden image. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And O king, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Again, just who are these people, these Chaldeans? If we went back and looked at chapter 2, I think we can understand exactly what is driving this hatred and this disdain. So, so back in chapter 2, it was the Chaldeans <clears throat> who 
the king had called to himself, and he said, if you can't interpret my dream, I think this was uh, chapter 2, verse 5, he says, you will be torn limb from limb. So the Chaldeans were told, you don't interpret the dream, you will be torn limb from limb. They couldn't interpret it. Daniel came and did interpret it, and then he received blessing and favor and a position of authority and honor from the king. So do you think perhaps there was some jealousy driving this communication? Even before the issue with the dream, remember Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego had received favorable treatment from the king and the king's leaders. So it's almost as though these Chaldeans are just sitting there green with envy, ready to go out and attack and slander and malign and do anything they can to make life difficult for the Jews. Just to speak practically about this for a moment, one thing to draw out of this, I think, is to realize what we, we have to think about what people have to gain when they come to bring a charge against another person. Okay, every situation must be examined and considered by the facts of the situation. But one thing we've got to be wise and shrewd to understand is what does somebody have to gain? The, the Chaldeans have a lot to gain if they were to go and, and bring down the Jews. Maybe they're seeking to get in that position of power and authority. Maybe they're seeking to get out of the king's bad graces because they couldn't interpret his dream and say, oh, king, look how dedicated we are to you. We must consider what someone has to gain. Why, Why is someone bringing this charge? What does this really have to do? What does this affect the Chaldeans? And the answer is that they have a lot to gain from it, potentially, if they get all these troubling, troublesome Jews out of their way. So they come, and they come, as you notice, with flattering speech in hand. O king, live forever. You, O king, they're just just giving all they can to puff up the king. And, of course, we give honor to those to whom honor is due. We respect our authorities. But you see that it can be done in the instance of of verse 16, in the speech of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It can be done without this over-the-top flattery. So they come and they turn this malicious hatred toward the Jews. And again, as I said a few moments ago, I think it was probably more than just these three young men who were not worshiping the king's image, but the Chaldeans made it their duty to pursue these who were in this type of leadership and authoritative position. And Calvin says that the Chaldeans did this. They hated the Jews in general. And so they did this because they thought if these three could be broken down, then the victory over the rest of the Jews would be easy. They wanted to attack the public faces uh, of the Jewish community to instill and to strike fear into the rest. This is a place, friends, where leadership bears a specific weight and responsibility. That can be leadership in the home. That can be leadership in the church, leadership in the workplace, leadership in in many places. This is where we bear a very specific responsibility because if a leader falls into some type of sin 
or if a leader is persecuted, it is likely that others will follow suit. So men, hear me in your homes. You bear a very specific weight and responsibility to lead with integrity. Because if you don't lead with integrity, where is your family going to follow? They're going to follow you down paths of unrighteousness? Perhaps by God's grace they will be turned away from your poor leadership and still follow Christ into righteousness. Now I think overall this just has to be a reminder to us of the deceitfulness of evil people. We must stand firm against the vices and the sins and the attacks of the world. Think about James 4 Verse 4, it says, Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Take that in the inverse. So, so friendship with the world is enmity with God. Friendship with the Lord, therefore, will produce enmity with the world. Again, you are not supposed to be a person of strife, but your life will produce enmity with the world. Darkness does not want anything to do with light. They want to stay in the darkness because their deeds are evil and they don't want the light to expose their evil deeds. We must understand these ways of the world. Does your Christian living produce hostility from the world? That's, I think that's a good and helpful way to look at it. Not hostility with the world, because we don't want to be hostile with the world. We want to go and proclaim Christ. But does the way that you live your life day in and day out, especially when you're out in the public, does it produce hostility from the world because their lives are so convicted by your righteousness and by your holy living? So the king's order, the Chaldeans' disdain, and then thirdly, let's look at the courageous stand. The courageous stand, verses 13 through 18. This is kind of where we'll camp out for, for just a little bit. Verse 13, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, he brought the men to himself. The king says, Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image? And he says, if you're ready, at the sound of the music, you can bow down and worship the image. And if you do very well, it's all forgiven. And he says, if you don't worship, you will be immediately cast into the furnace of blazing fire. And he says, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? And, and so this is the climax of the story. Now, we, we understand that, that coming later, the Lord will deliver the men from the furnace, but this is the climax. This is where we see the courageous stand for true worship, and it begins with the king being utterly enraged. Then the king, in rage and anger, called for the young men to be brought to himself. This is the way of man, is it not? These men, alongside of Daniel, had been right in the center of the king's favor up and until the point that they disobey one of his commands. They had been in his good graces. They had been given great authority under the king's leadership until they didn't do what he wanted. 
and that is the way of man, and that is one of the great dangers of man-pleasing. If you seek to please a mortal man, what you are seeking to please is someone who will change, someone who can, can twist and pervert things, someone who shifts and follows the whims of the flesh. Clearly, the king's command went against Scripture. You know, there, there's, there's no, no question about that. Do you see the slippery slope of trying to please men? And that's trying to please any men. That's trying to please any person in any area of life. If you seek the approval and the applause and the pleasure of others, if you find gratification in receiving praise from men, you are on a slippery slope because as soon as they want you to do something against Scripture, now you have this great problem before you. You crave their approval. They tell you to go against the Lord's command. So who will you serve? Will you serve God or will you serve man? So the king is enraged and he even offers this taunt, I think, at the end of verse 15. He says, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? It's just like a, a, a person setting a ball on a tee for a kid to swing a bat at. He, he puts it on a tee for, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to give this glorious, God-honoring response. They respond, verse 16, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. He said, we don't need to give you an answer. Your threats, O king, are worthless. They strike no fear into us because we fear God. We do not fear man. Matthew Henry notes, so, so these men, you, you notice I, I keep trying to make sure I say young men because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were what we would consider youth. They were probably around 16 years old, maybe, maybe a little older, maybe a little younger, but they, they were young. They were youth. They were not full-grown men at this point. Matthew Henry notes that while they were children, while they were youths, that we should rather call them not the three youths, not the three children, but the three champions. Because what they display here is a battle hero-like faith. A battle hero-like courage. A battle champion standing in the face of evil. These are not three children. These are three champions for the kingdom of God. It's ought to be our hearts, dear saints, before the world. That we stand up to the world and we say no. We stand firm. We don't waver on our convictions. We don't waver on the truth. Dear friends, again, to go back to what we said earlier, we must know the truth to be able to do that. How do you stand against an increasingly wicked culture if you don't know what the Lord's book says? If you don't know what He commands, if you don't know what He requires of His people? 
should stand for the truth no matter the cost. Think about what Peter wrote, that we should always be ready to give a defense of the hope that is in us. Dear friends, do you hear what he said, though? Give a defense of your hope, not a defense of yourself. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do. They give a defense of their hope. They give a defense of what God is able and going to do. Notice what they say. They say, we we don't need to give you an answer, but King, here is our answer. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us from your hand, O King. The Lord, if he so chooses, has every power in heaven and on earth at his disposal. And these men rightly say, if he chooses, he is able to deliver us. He can reach in and pull us out of that fire. He could strike the king and every one of of his friends and companions dead. and, And he could do whatever he pleases. He is able to deliver. Do you understand, friends, that sometimes deliverance is not the Lord's plan? Sometimes he does not deliver you from the fire. Sometimes, dear saints, the Lord chooses to glorify himself as he walks with you through the fire. Sometimes the Lord's design is not to ease your burden, but to strengthen your back. Sometimes it's not that you pray and pray and pray and finally the Lord delivers you from tribulation. Sometimes you pray and pray and pray and the pressure only increases. But as the pressure increases, His power is perfected in weakness. His grace is sufficient. So they say, God is able to deliver us. But do you notice that they say, He will deliver us out of your hand. He he is able to deliver us from the fire because he may or may not. But he will deliver us from your hand. Henry again reminds, Nebuchadnezzar can torment and kill the body and after that there's no more that he can do and then they are delivered out of his hand. They were standing upon the truth that Jesus would later proclaim, do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He will deliver us from your hand. He will, saint, deliver you out of whatever trial you walk through in this life. It may not be in this life, but he will eternally deliver those who are his. So what's the outworking uh, of this faith? What's the outworking of this trust in the Lord's deliverance? Look at verse 18. They continue, even if he does not, and I think that's referring to deliver us from the furnace because they said he will deliver us from your hand, So even if he does not deliver us from the furnace, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship 
the golden image that you have set up. They're firmly planted in their conviction. They will worship and fear God rather than fearing men and worshiping whatever men tell them to worship. They realize that suffering may indeed come. Intense physical suffering may come very soon. They're committed to standing for the Lord. They're committed to standing for the truth and for what is right. Dear friends, we need to have the same resolve. In an age of ever-increasing wickedness, we need to have the same resolve to stand up and reject falsehood. To stand up and reject idol worship. To not even waver. To not even consider for a moment to do what the world tells us when we know it goes against the scripture. In our age, it's not a golden image that we're called and told to worship. Our age worships the God of self. The God of doing whatever you please so long as it doesn't trample on the sinful, blasphemous, heinous rights of someone that wants to pursue all kinds of sin, you do whatever you please and you practice whatever you please. That's, that's the world today. That is their God. That is their idol. The idol today is the idol of self and pleasure and doing whatever makes you feel good. We need to reject all of that falsehood. We need to, as a church, understand that we must stand firm upon the call to true biblical worship as we're gathered together. The Lord's Day, the Lord's Day gathering is the highlight of our week as saints. So we must guard and defend this worship. But dear friend, let's not stop there. You must guard your life because your life is a sacrifice of worship every day of the week. Pure worship in the church starts with a pure life in our individual daily routine. If you're not pure in the home, if you're not pure in the workplace, your worship when you come to the church will not be pure. Be pure as Christ is pure. And then when the church comes together, the purity and the, and the God-glorifying nature of our worship, dear friends, is so much greater than the sum of the individual parts. Take care that your life is an acceptable, pure offering of worship to the Lord. So we must press forward in, in the passage. Again, I said we're not going to pick up everything that we can, but I want to work through just to, to work our way to kind of an ultimate summary and highlight. Just a, a little bit of time left. We also see going forward the crazed anger of the king. In verse 19 and following, it says, verse 19, Then the king, he was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He's just filled with rage. He's filled with anger that these men would defy his command. He says, 
heat the furnace seven times hotter than it ought to be, than it normally is. It's so hot that when the king, he uses his most valiant warriors to come tie these men up, there's no resistance. They've told the king, we're ready to go to the furnace to be burned alive. There's no resistance. And in his rage, he he gets his most valiant and greatest warriors to come tie them up and throw them into the fire. And the text tells us when they go to do that, these men themselves, the warriors, were killed and consumed by the fire because the furnace was so blazingly hot. It's crazed anger. And then coming to verses 24, really through 27, we see the companions protected. The companions protected. They've been thrown into the fire, and then the king was astounded, and he stood up in haste. And he said to his officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? And they replied, Certainly, O king. And he said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And then the king came near and he stood at the door of the furnace of blazing fire. And he responded and he said, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, come out, you servants of the most high God, and come here. And then they came out of the midst of the fire And all the king's high officials were gathered around and they saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor did they have the smell of fire even upon them. The majestic protection of the Lord. Do you see his power at work? The three men enter. The king peers in and there's a fourth and the king says, He's got an appearance as of one of the sons of the gods. Now, I don't think this text gives us enough indication to know if this is a pre-incarnate Christ or just perhaps an angel that the Lord sends to protect these men. But what you see is the Lord protecting those who stand upon the truth. What you see is a fulfillment of God's promise in Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, the Lord says, I will be with you. And through the rivers, he says, they will not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. In Hebrews 13, the Lord says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And he says that, the text goes on, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? The Lord's promise. We must have a calm and resolved trust in the promises of God that he will never leave nor forsake us. And friends, that trust is only granted by the powerful working of the Spirit in your life. It's not a trust, it's not a resolve that you can muster up in your own strength. So I want to acknowledge that. Then I want to tell you, I think that's also a work of the Lord that is is more caught than taught. And that you can go tell someone, stand firm, trust the Lord, the Lord will deliver you. But until you show it and until you prove it in your own life, those encouragements really ring hollow. 
doesn't mean we, we don't do it, but if you cannot stand in the midst of the flame, how do you go and encourage a brother or sister as they are walking through the fire? And understand, all of our trials are different but because they come from the Lord to, to do a specific work in our lives. So that doesn't mean that your trial has to be a quote-unquote level 10 to be able to minister to someone who's walking through a level 8 trial. What you must be doing is being faithful wherever the Lord has called you, and you bring the Scriptures to bear. We must pursue this calm trust in the Lord. and We ought to exemplify it to our fellow saints. Just think about these promises of the Lord. Think about His great faithfulness. Think about His mercy that endures forever. Think about the fact that his promises never fail. Dear friends, the Lord promises to walk with us through the fires. He promises that the flood will not overwhelm us, and he does this because he's ransomed us from the power of sin through the blood of Christ, and no matter what happens, he will deliver. Because all of this is passing Leading and momentary in light affliction in regard and in light of the glory that is to come. We must have a response similar to what we see in these three young men that we're resolved to stand for the Lord in every situation, no matter what comes. No matter the trial or trouble or sickness or tribulation, no matter the blessing and, and the great prosperity, you must stand and honor the Lord. The Lord's promise always results in the nearness of God to his people. Whether he delivers you or whether he walks you through the fire, his promise is that he will always be with his people. Think about Psalm 73. Psalm 73, the last few verses there, verse 25 through 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord God. I have made Yahweh my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The nearness of God is our good. And so the companions are protected. They're loosed, walking in the fire. Nebuchadnezzar calls them out. He gives orders, as we would see if we read the last three verses, that, that no one should, should malign the God of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, he adds the Most High God to, to the wall of pagan gods that his people serve and worship. And let me make a point here in study. I, I saw that there are those who will take this and say that Nebuchadnezzar repented. Dear friends, if you think that 
just verses 28 through 30 are evidence of repentance, we need to talk about genuine repentance. Because he just added the Lord to the rest of his pagan idols. So he, he puts them back in this place of honor and power and authority among these pagan people. But the conclusion that we must draw, dear friends, is to see the priority of pure worship. To see the call of God to stand no matter what comes our way to worship and to glorify Him, to willingly walk into the fire for the sake of pure and true worship. And we be so emboldened by the Lord. We live in days of loose worship, loose convictions, waning convictions, false teaching, scorn and mocking and all kinds of evil. And we hear the Lord's word and be pressed and encouraged to stand and to be faithful. May we stand for the worship of God alone through Christ. Do you hear through Christ in that? You cannot worship God alone except through Christ. You must come as one who is washed in His blood, who has given your life to Him in faith, and repentance, and that faith and repentance is evidenced by your life being transformed. Pure worship of God is meaningless if you live like a devil. It's meaningless even if you live a moral life, but don't find yourself and your life in Him through faith. In Revelation 5, we see that picture where it's cried out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. The worship begins with the idea of the redeeming work of Christ. We come to worship the Lord as those who are washed in His blood. And our worth is because of Him. Therefore, our worship is due only to Him. And we stand to worship God rightly. May we stand against the evils of our world and our culture and our day. May we stand upon the truth of Scripture. And we be those who are rooted and grounded in the truth, those who are known by our love and our commitment to the truth and our commitment to holy living. And we give our lives to worship the true God alone. Let's pray.